iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? This industry has been really good at driving costs down and driving yeah. efficiencies at the expense of everything else at the expense of the small farmers that are really struggling and are left behind at the expense of environmental stewardship animal welfare and i think that there is a lot more awareness and it's not gonna last Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. How is everyone this fine day? How weird is it, actually, that it's already the last week of August? Where has the summer gone? My goodness. I was thinking about this just last night, in fact. And as I was doing that, I was eating a fantastic chocolate chip cookie that I got from this uh, local bakery I go to. It's called Arismendi. They're like a um, like a co-op. They make amazing stuff. And these cookies are incredible. Like, you know, they're like the size of a Frisbee. But of course, no cookie would be complete without a nice, tall glass of milk. I love milk. I kind of grew up in one of those milk households. Like, we always had like gallons. We had a second fridge that was basically a milk fridge. And there was four of us, and like, you know, we'd be running around playing and stuff, and I'd come inside and be so thirsty. I'd just pour myself a tall glass of milk and just down it. And my friends were disgusted. That's how I grew up. But anyhow, these days, as I pour out a glass, I've begun to look a little askance at that cup of milk. Uh, maybe it's because I have very young kids now or whatever. But it's, I've kind of started to think about that or really a lot of the food we eat and what it kind of takes to produce this stuff. And, you know, just a huge environmental footprint, the animal welfare issues, all of that stuff. And to be clear, those concerns haven't yet led to any big behavior change in me. I still drink milk, though we do have more oat milk in the house these days. Um, still love a burger, chicken love it all. I say that to say that this is not me being holier than thou and actually I think it's I'm a pretty typical consumer in this way of kind of starting to worry about things but not so much that I've just completely cut out meat for example. But as we've covered a lot on this pod uh, over the past six, nine months, um, there's just been a real boom happening in food tech and startups that are now raising tons of money against the backdrop of the environmental issues to remake how we get a lot of the staples of kind of the Western diet. Uh, and today we have on another founder in this brave new world, and she has a fascinating story. On the pod is Maggie Rishani. She's the founder of Nobel Foods, and what she's doing is basically creating cheese out of soybeans. Mmm. <laughs> Doesn't that sound good? Uh, well, she says it's as good as the real thing. As you'll soon hear, the reason she started the company is that she loves cheese, but she's also lactose intolerant. And so she's trying to create a world that is better for her as someone who loves cheese. So as one does, she quit her job, started a company to make cheese without the cow, and has in total raised just about $100 million, including $75 million in a very recent round that was announced just earlier this month. So it's a really fun conversation. And as I mentioned, Maggie's personal story is even more arresting than soybean cheese. And I think you'll enjoy it. Like I said, it's just, it, it feels like this company is of a piece of a lot with a lot of these companies that are starting up to kind of address some of these bigger issues that are obviously bigger issues and with some of the things we talked about last week with Dave Friedberg. So without further ado, I will now hand you over to my chat with Maggie Rishani, founder and CEO of Nobel Foods. Enjoy. 
I saw the announcement uh, about your guys' funding a few weeks back, and it kind of piqued my interest because I've been writing a lot about alternative proteins, cultured meat, that whole world, and kind of diving into it in lots of different ways. And so as a way to kind of set the scene, is there a kind of quick and dirty way you can explain how cheese is made now? Because I feel like most people don't understand. That's a really good point. Honestly, we, we also did some consumer surveys and a lot of people did not associate cheese with coming from an animal. So yes. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wow. it's crazy, right? But actually, when you really think about it, it's not that crazy because it's not a part of the animal. It's not like you're eating the flesh. With meat, it's very obvious. And I think with cheese, there's this level of separation. So it's important to talk about how it's made. And Basically, all cheese comes from milk. Mammals produce milk after they give birth, just like humans. <laughs> and we take that milk and turn it into products like cheese and yogurt and other dairy yeah. derivatives. And with cheese, it's really just taking the milk, adding enzymes to it to curd the proteins. Mm. And the main proteins in milk that curd into cheese um, are caseins. So if you look at milk from a compositional standpoint, it's mostly water with a little bit of protein, fat, and sugar. And right. really what makes it so unique is these dairy proteins that are called casein. And these proteins are unique because they have the ability to form cheese and they have the ability to melt and they have the ability to stretch and they have the ability to be you know, grated at room temperature. So they really give cheese and other dairy products, a lot of their properties, a lot of the things that we love about them. And right. the crazy part is there is nothing in nature. There's no molecule out there that can mimic casein. It's such a unique protein. And it's as of today, you can only get it, any product you buy that has casein. It's from casein that was produced by a female lactating mammal. It has to come from an animal. It's kind of exclusively anything with casein comes at some point from a lactating mammal. Yes, absolutely. Right. Why? I'll start there. Why have you decided? I imagine when you were a little girl, you were like, you know what? I want to make alternative cheese when I grow up. <laughs> I wish or maybe I was you... <laughs> that wise. <laughs> no. But how actually... did you, how, how and why did you come to this? Yeah, it actually, it was later in life that I discovered that. And there's a couple reasons. One, as I was changing my diet and switching to a more plant-focused diet, I realized that it was really hard for me to give up cheese. And mm. I know many people that I talk to that are trying to reduce their reliance on products that come from animals have a really hard time giving up cheese. It's just so addictive and delicious and there's nothing out there that hits the mark. Um, why were you changing your diet? Just because? No, no, not, not because I think that, you know, most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about how food gets to our plate. And I spend most of my life not thinking about that either yeah. until I was lactose intolerant. And uh. I'm an engineer by training and I like to understand why things are the way they are. And I mm -hmm. refuse to accept that I was so unlucky that I couldn't eat cheese for the rest of my life because I'm lactose intolerant. So I wanted to understand like why. And I started looking into just dairy and I never stopped to ask, where does dairy come from? How does it end up on our plate? You know, And I think that when you start asking these questions, you realize that the things that you take for granted that you use every day, you are shocked by how they're made. And to me, the realization that we actually have to get it from a cow, we have to constantly impregnate cows so they keep producing milk. And that that was like the state of the art technology that we had. That was insane to me. And then on top of that, it's extremely inefficient. So if you look at it from an engineering perspective as a system, you put six pounds of feed whether it's corn mm. soy or other other you know feed and then other plant that's been cultivated with lots of resources and water and absolutely and co2 emissions and everything else yes yeah, so, so you have like about six pounds of these foods and then up to a thousand gallons of water depending on you know you can go from 600 to a thousand gallons of water to just make one gallon of milk like and to me that was insane right we use 
technology to optimize so many parts of our lives, but the way we make food has fundamentally, and by fundamentally, I mean like our reliance on animals that we've domesticated 3000 years ago has not changed. Just to kind of sum up. So you're talking about six pounds of food, a thousand gallons of water. Yes. And is that water used to grow that food or water drunk by the animal or both? It's a combination. And I think that's the piece that we don't see is Mm. you just assume that the cow is drinking, the animal is drinking the water, but actually we grow an insane amount of land. We use it to grow animal feed, to just feed these animals, right? Like in the US alone, we have close to 90 million acres of soy and another 90 million acres of corn. And the majority of these, over 90% of them go into animal feed. So part of the water is in the feed and processing and in just the animal's intake. So it's six pounds of food, a thousand gallons of water for a single gallon of milk, of which I have one right now in my fridge. Right. Yeah. When you put it in those terms, it does sound bananas. But to your point, the the kind of magic ingredient that is produced from that highly inefficient process is, among other things, is casein. Right. So when you go back and and you look at, okay, well, the reality is no one wants to give up anything, right? Like if you look at the efforts that have been ongoing for 50 years, whether they're from the animal welfare or environmental groups, we've known for a long time about issues related to our food system. And I think that yeah. just preaching about them is not going to change much. And I think that the combination of having awareness plus offering solutions is something that could be more effective. So what we've done is we focused on figuring out what makes these products so delicious, so addictive, so unique, and how do we make them in a way that's more efficient, more sustainable, and more basically humane, because you don't have to raise these animals, right? Which today, most of these animals are raised on factory farms. Right. The idea of like this magical small farm where you have your cows roaming and in the yeah. sun and like that is the exception today. It's not the rule. Right. And I think most of us don't know that because that's the image that we have. When you look at the ads, when you pick up, uh, you know, your gallon of milk, usually if there is a picture, it's like a happy cow or the sun yes. or grass. Right. So, so it's there is a disconnect between where we think our food is coming from and where our food is coming from. Yeah. I've never seen a package with like an image of a commercial feedlot that pardon my French smells like shit. Right. And kind of looks like it too. And a bunch of cows like eating from the same trough looking miserable. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you know, we have the opportunity to make foods that people want to buy, but make them in a way that, again, is better for them, for the planet and for the animals. And I think that is what drives us. This is our mission. And we're starting with dairy. We're starting with cheese just because it's such an untapped opportunity. Cheese Mm -hmm. has not been really nailed in our opinion. And right now, if you look at where the cheese is coming from, 99% of it is animal-based. So there's a lot of talks in dairy about how plant-based Dairy has taken on the dairy aisle, et cetera, but it's really fluid milk. So I think like 13, 14% of the total milk market is plant-based right now, and the rest of it is animal-based. But when you look at categories like cheese, 99% of it is animal-based, and only 1% of it comes from plants. So there are a lot of opportunities to create better products and really drive those numbers up. But going back to that, that kind of the thing that makes cheese, cheese, the casein, I mean, surely you're not the first person to think of this. How are you squaring the circle? How are you coming up with casein that does not involve a lactating mammal? (laughs) It's really complicated. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, I I don't know how technical you want to get, but... I'll let you know if we're getting too deep in the weeds. (laughs) Yeah, stop me if it gets too deep, but... Not just that, casein is actually a family of four proteins. And mm-hmm. one is understanding the functionality of each of these proteins to figure out which ones you really need to get the functionality of your product. The second piece is casein is one of the most 
challenging proteins to produce <laughs> because mm. it's very unstructured. And if you think about it from a biological perspective, it's meant to be for a calf that's drinking its mother's milk. And it actually has very nutritious properties that keeps the calf as well addicted or attached to its mother's milk. Yeah. So when it, the calf drinks it, it gets degraded and chopped very quickly. So it gets absorbed in the stomach of the calf. I'm telling you all this background just to, when you take that protein and you're trying to produce it, it's actually very difficult because it's mm. not structured. It's very prone to being attacked. And we spend the last four years on figuring out ways to how to produce this protein in a way that makes it stable and protected. So it's not attacked and it doesn't lose its functionality. Right. So, you know, that's what our four years of R&D has led up to. And the way we figured out how to do it is by trying all the ways that don't work. <laughs> so, and that's just <laughs> So four years, of, four years of trial and error. Absolutely. Basically. I mean, it's four years of failure and getting up and learning and trying again. Right. And that's part of the R&D process. That's part of how science works. It's, it's definitely not for people who don't have thick skin or want to succeed on the first try. Like you have to be okay failing a lot of times. And that's how we got there with Kaysen. Pause there. So you four years of R and D. So can we go back a bit? Like, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? How? What? What is your kind of your background? Because I think it'd be informative to kind of understand where you're coming at this kind of problem from or how you arrived here. Yeah, I I grew up in Lebanon. Were you in uh, Beirut? I was close to Beirut. Lebanon, unfortunately, has had a lot of instability. Hmm. And I think my mom saw the writing on the wall a long time ago. And when I was 18, she bought me a one-way ticket and did not ask me for my opinion, but she basically shipped me to the U.S. Did you have family out here? Yes. She had a sister in Texas. From near Beirut to Texas. Where in Texas? To Cedar Park, Texas. I have no idea where that is. It's close to Austin. <laughs> in <Okay>. the suburbs. <laughs> It was definitely a cultural shock. It, it was imagine. it was definitely the biggest cultural shock I've had in my life. It's a very different, you know, reality and environment yeah. and culture. So And was there was there a precipitating event in Lebanon because as you say it's there's been a lot of years of a lot of bad things happening, but was there one thing that your mom finally said, "You know what? You got to go somewhere safer?" I don't know if it was one thing. I, my mom grew up during the Civil War, and my dad passed away when I was seven, and she mm. raised me and my brother on her own. And I think that she always knew, because of all the things that happened to her in her life, that she needed to get us out of there. So I think the first opportunity she had is when I turned 18. And are you you older? I am older, yeah. Right. And she just went for it. This sounds very harrowing, though. I mean, how sudden was it? Or was it like you wake up one day, you're like, pack your bags, you're going to Texas? Pretty much, yeah. She gave me a week notice, basically. A week notice? I thought I was starting the university. I was accepted, and I we paid the deposit to start at the American University of Beirut with all my friends that I've known all my life. Um, oh, my God. I resented her for the first couple of years. I was very angry. And now, obviously, yeah. like I understand. And I, you know, especially, in, I don't know, how, Lebanon right now is going through the worst economic crisis that the world has seen in 150 years. Like, literally, people cannot get electricity or fuel or medicine. Oh it's goodness. really, really bad. I was there two weeks ago and it's just unlivable. So I am now even more than ever grateful for her for doing that but at the time you know you're 18 you're being removed from everything you know it's a tragedy of the highest order it's hard it's hard that you don't yeah, appreciate yeah. it but it was for the best and did your brother did she send your brother out too or did he stay there yeah he, she sent him he was 16 at the time she sent him out and it was tough because we had to live together on our own <laughs> what do you mean on your own like we had an apartment that we rented and it was me and my brother. I At was 18, 18 and, 16. and he was 16. Yeah. 
what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, he was wow. in high school and I was and and the crazy part is I did not apply for a university. So I came here without you know, I was supposed to start college in two weeks in yeah. Lebanon. So I ended up doing a year of community college and I didn't know what community college was. I discovered that <laughs> uh, on my first week, welcome to living in the U S but it was, it was hard. It was a hard experience. And the first year was especially hard, but then it got easier and eventually, right. you know, it got easy. So do you like claim Texas now? Like that's, that's like your place. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't claim it, no. If only <laughs> be, the listeners could see your face. <laughs> to be honest, I, I loved living in Austin. I think Austin yeah. is a unique part of Texas. And I think there's a lot of diversity in Texas in terms of depending on where you are. I really enjoyed Austin. I lived in other parts of Texas that I thought you know, were not as exciting to me. <laughs> yeah. But it's hard. Yeah. I think it's hard too when you... You know, part of me feels like I can't claim any one place because they all shape me in a way. And mm. I relate to some parts of being in Beirut and other parts of being in California and other parts of being in Texas. And Yeah. And how old are you now, can I ask? I'm 32. Right. So you've been in here for nearly as long as you were in Lebanon. Yeah. For, well, 14 years. Yeah. yeah. So... After your year of community college, I presume you actually then went to a four-year? Yes, I went to, actually, I did three years. I went to UT Austin, and I got my degree in civil engineering. My dad was a civil engineer. And one thing you should know about growing up in Lebanon is you can either be a doctor or an engineer. <laughs> that, those are the those are their paths, right? <laughs> Literally, those right, are right. like the two options you have to be accepted by the society. Yes. And I faint when I see blood, so... By default, I was an engineer. The good news is I loved math and science, so it wasn't, um, you know, a hard stretch. I just didn't yeah. know what civil engineers do. You know, I, I had a very vague idea, but it wasn't concrete, and I wasn't really thinking very deeply about what I'm going to study, other than it was one of the two options that I was expected to do. And right, I realized that I am more extroverted. I mean, I love the science, I love the math, I love the physics, but I could not see myself working on designing forces in concrete and steel for the rest of my life. That was not my yes. my calling. I had um, a similar, I was going to, I thought I was going to be a geologist and I started, I took like a year of geology courses and all the hard science that goes along with that. And I re distinctly remember being in a lab with a bunch of dudes, it was all dudes, <laughs> Looking, we're each looking at our own rock. <laughs> and I remember I sneezed and no one said a word. Like there was no, like everybody had like big beards and were just like really focused on their rocks and no one even said bless you or anything. I was like, it's not I for me. I don't belong here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but yeah, for me, I ended up going to grad school because I didn't know what to do. Yeah. I went to grad school and I tried to broaden my engineering degree. So I studied engineering and project management. So it was mm. less of being a technical person and more around thinking through the challenges of delivering technical projects from a right. risk, timing, cost perspective. And I think that was really exciting. And I wanted to work on big projects. I've, I've always liked taking something from kind of an idea on paper and building it. And I think project management allows you to do that. When you were studying, all of that sounds very expensive. Was your mom able to support you from afar or did you get scholarships or were you working a ton of jobs? Like, how did that work? Uh, I took on a lot of loans <laughs> yeah. that took me a long time to pay off. That was one way. And eventually I started working as a tutor for one class. And mm. I also did like undergraduate research assistant job. So it was a combination at the beginning. My, I mean, obviously my mom supported me and my brother as much as she could, yeah. but you know, that was supplemented with a lot of loans and, um, jobs eventually. So that's how, and, and when I got to grad school, I got a fellowship, which was great. Oh, okay. Um, so right. that's 
one of the reasons I went to Berkeley is because they offered me a very generous fellowship. So that's what brought you out here to California. Yes, exactly. That was my first venture to the Bay Area. <laughs> right, 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 right. So then you graduated when from that? 2012. And then I think from my memory from looking at your LinkedIn, you went to Shell? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to work on the biggest projects, the most complex challenges. And obviously, like being in Texas before coming to California, you are very exposed to the oil and gas industry. And I mean, from a construction and project management perspective, they have the most complex projects you can think of. I yeah. was working on a $12 billion project. Which one? I, I ask because I used to cover oil and gas and went to some of those gigantic projects that Shell <laughs> ran. Yeah, that one was liquefied natural gas. So um, In Qatar? No, that one was actually in Georgia, in the US. Oh, I see. Right, right. It was okay. called Elba LNG. I think it's still going on. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's how long it these is. projects take. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was one of the main projects I worked on, and it was all about liquefying natural gas. So the volume gets smaller when you turn it from a gas to a liquid, so you can easily transport it and send yeah. it to other markets that need it. So I think that when you're 20 something and you have a lot of loans and you're excited about big projects, you're not, for me, I wasn't thinking too deeply about at that time, what do I want to dedicate the rest of my life doing? I kind of looked at it as it's a learning opportunity and jumped in and took the job. I learned a lot, to be fair. Like I did learn a lot. I was challenged. I was given a lot of great opportunities. A lot of times I was one of the few, if not the only woman on some of these construction sites. So it, it was yep. really a good opportunity for me to learn and grow. And I think that, you know, very quickly when I was working at Shell, I started realizing that I need a bigger purpose mm. and that I cannot spend the next 20, 30 years of my life there. And you realize that as well, because I was working in a in project management where mm. there's a lot of very experienced seasoned people. And most of them have been, you know, I would introduce myself and they would introduce themselves and tell me, oh yeah, I started in 1970 something or in totally. 1980. And, and that's when I started panicking. And I'm like, I don't think <laughs> I, that, that's not the trajectory that I want for my life. Yeah. But also, I didn't want to just do something to do something. I wanted it to be really meaningful. And one of the things that I didn't tell you earlier is I spent a lot of time growing up in Lebanon rescuing cats and dogs off the street. It's oh. not uncommon in Lebanon to have animals on the streets. It's not like the U.S. And I've always had this empathy for animals. And So when you say rescuing them, because I've traveled around some parts where like in Africa and other places where you see like a dog that looks like it hasn't eaten in four days and it's scraggly and it's kind of rooting through trash or a cat. Or, I mean, yeah. street ant dogs and cats look really rough, but like when you're talking about saving them, what did that entail? Bring them home so my mom can come in and find like <laughs> three kittens. <laughs> three feral cats and in your house. And yell at me. Yeah, pretty much. And then finding them homes. So I would try to get them in and get in trouble, obviously, but then try to find them like with the neighbors or a family right. friend or try to get them a home. And at the time when I was growing up in Lama, there was zero nonprofits that supported mm. and it was zero. Now there's a couple, but there were zero at the time. So it's still hard, but it was really hard back then as well. So I would just bring them home and surprise my mom. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think to me, I never connected the dots between the way we treat other species and mm. the way we treat the environment and our eventual like demise as the human race. And yeah. it honestly took me 20 something years to really figure that out. But I think that once I really started understanding our food system and understanding how we industrialize it and how we make most of the food that we eat today, I realized that it's not good for the animals. It's not good for 
the environment and really we are part of that ecosystem and we're part of that environment and there's no way we are gonna thrive on this planet for years to come if we treat everything around us that way and it's just not scalable so were you living in houston at the time when you were working at shell I started in Houston, but actually I was on a project in a town called Shirts, Texas, which I'm sure you never heard of. No, I've not. And I was basically commuting. So I would go there on Monday and come back on Thursday or Friday. Mm. So I was in between Houston and a small town in Texas. Uh, and then eventually I got relocated to the Bay Area when I was working for Shell. I see. You started having these kind of realizations or thoughts about, well, this is a big problem and blah, blah, blah. But how do you get to the, was there a moment where you're like, you know what, I'm going to chuck this all in and I'm going to do a startup and raise money and take on a scientific problem that doesn't have a clear solution, et cetera. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy when you say it that way. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> I was back in the Bay Area. I was working for Shell here. And that's when I started having these, realizing I was lactose intolerant. And mm. looking into the food system. And for me, I wanted to change my diet and I started doing it. And honestly, it was very, some people tell you like over the course of five years, I gradually like removed these products from my life. Yeah. For me, it was very much overnight. And I don't recommend that, but <laughs> for me, it was yeah. very much overnight. And the more I read and learned and educated myself about the topic, the more it was hard for me to not do something about it. Like, I don't know how to explain mm. it to you, but it's almost like, I, I felt like I woke up <laughs> and found out about things that I felt like I was ignorant about or lied to all mm. my life. And I just wanted to do something about it. I had all this energy and this drive and I wanted to use all my time, all my energy, all my resources on figuring out how to change our food system, period. And I quit my job. I literally like, that happened in, I think, like end of 2015. And yeah. in February or March of 2016, I was gone. I was out of shell. I gave my notice. So you started kind of having these realizations at the end of 2015. Two months later, you're like, peace out, shell. Yeah, I'm, pretty I'm much. Is your mom entrepreneurial? I'm just, uh, or is it just? <laughs> I am actually the first person in my family to ever be employed by a big company. So, <laughs> yes. Um, I see. I see. So my dad was a civil engineer and he mm -hmm. had a construction company. So he was entrepreneurial with civil engineering as a base. After he passed away, my mom had to go from being a housewife to <laughs> really figuring out how to raise two kids and build sources of income because she yeah. didn't have that anymore. So she tried so many different businesses. I, I honestly cannot name them. At some point, I think she had a Pizza Hut franchise. Um, Whoa. She did real estate. She tried stocks. She tried electricity. She tried so many different ventures. Electricity? Um, in Lebanon, electricity is a big problem. And yeah. you don't get reliable government electricity so you get it for like four hours a day and then people have to figure out how to get electricity from other sources so anyway she tried all these different things and she was she she still is very entrepreneurial up to this day so i think that unconsciously i've known that i'm not gonna work for a big company for the rest of my life right that was claustrophobic for me right gotcha as you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So you quit. It's early 2016. You've kind of alighted on this problem. But again, it's, it's not clear that the problem you're trying to solve has a solve necessarily when you're talking about, I mean, I don't know if you thought immediately landed on cheese, but or more broadly, the food system. So how did you end up starting the company? I definitely went to cheese right away because that's the biggest pain point I had when I changed my diet. Because you love cheese and you can't have cheese now. Exactly. I, I love cheese. So this is like the classic Silicon Valley, find a problem that you have and try to solve it. But, but the funny part is I was not like, I never thought about it in, in that way. I wasn't, yeah. you know, I was in the Bay area for maybe 18 months or a couple of years when I had this idea, I was still in like oil and gas. I wasn't even like in, in drenched in the Silicon Valley way of life or thought, but I mean, it was very personal and I wanted to solve that problem. And I, I knew that I could not live in a world <laughs> where I could not accept to live in a world where I can never have cheese. <laughs> so I started the company and it was not, I mean, it's still not easy. It wasn't easy at all at the time. It was mm. scary, but I think that I knew that if I asked the right questions and I dug deep enough and, and I spent a lot of time upfront looking at a lot of different ways that people were making animal proteins about the animals. It's not like I just had this idea and jumped. I spent the yeah. first six, nine months just looking at reading. I took a bunch of biology classes on online, mm. read a lot of papers, a lot of um, scientific papers, talked to a lot of different people, started building economic models for different technologies to evaluate them. Like I spent six months doing a deep dive on the space and the technologies and the science and where things were. And what I discovered from, from all these readings is that people have used plants to make drugs. That's a technology that was developed 30 plus years ago and pharmaceutical companies have developed it. And it's not that it's impossible. It's just, it hasn't been done in the context of making a food grade protein. So yes, I took a risk because there is no guarantee of success, but from a scientific perspective, obviously there never is until you have it. But I also knew just using like, you know, a first principles approach that the different pieces were done. They were not just done in that particular combination. So I knew we can make complex proteins in plants. And I knew that if we were able to do that and find ways to make a lot of these proteins, then we can make it cheaply. And that was very yeah. important to me. So I told you about my background. And mm. as you know, I mean, I really believe that if we're going to change the food system in any way, we have to be cost competitive. So that was For really sure. important to me on day one, right? Like I, I wanted to develop a technology that from day one, there was a clear path to get to a cost structure that made sense. And, and when I say that, I mean, like cost structure that makes sense is below $5 a pound. Right. And most of the foods we eat, all the animal proteins are operating at really high scale, and mm -hmm. they're heavily subsidized. So you're competing on commodity pricing basically with a highly scaled highly subsidized system wait hold on what's subsidized and i pardon my ignorance I'm, no but... no that's a great so in the u.s you get subsidies so farmers in the u.s lose money on every gallon of milk they produce so let's say it costs them 24 cents to make a gallon of milk they only get 18 cents for it right and the delta of how much money they lose, they get that back in government subsidies. So I see. not just that, but also the animal feed we grow is also subsidized. The corn and soy. Yeah, exactly. So there's multiple pieces of 
the supply chain within the way we operate today that are heavily subsidized by the government. So you're competing with a price that's artificially low because it includes all these subsidies. And yeah. I felt and I still strongly believe that we're better off trying to start with technology that can be really cheap than trying to change the politics around subsidies, right? So Yeah. You don't want to make a, a Cadillac cheese that costs ten bucks a slice because only the like the rich people will be able to buy that and feel good about themselves. Yeah, yeah. and and that's not the point, right? We fail. If yeah. we create food that's elitist or that's unaffordable or too expensive or and obviously like when we start we're not going to have scale and we're going to have to start at a higher cost structure but the idea is that there's a very clear way to get to these lower cost structures that would make this affordable and competitive with animal-based products and eventually cheaper right the goal is not just to be yeah the same but eventually be able to be cheaper and because we're working with plants we are able to do that so who wrote your first check or how'd you get your first check to actually start doing all this? That was a combination of luck plus persistence. Um, in 2016, when I left my job at Shell and I started looking for, you know, starting developing my idea hmm. at the same time, there is a nonprofit called the Good Food Institute that was getting off the ground. Yes. And GFI or the Good Food Institute, they were like five people or four people at the time. Mm -hmm. And they just hired a couple of people that had technical backgrounds. One of them was a PhD scientist who helped me really develop the science foundation and the science plan and also introduced me to our first investor, which is New Crop Capital. Okay. So New Crop Capital is a food and ag focused fund that their main investment thesis is to invest in companies that are displacing like an animal as a food technology. And I met with Chris Kerr, who's the chief investment officer. And he basically was like, I'm going to take a chance on you and write you a hundred thousand dollar check. But those are like the deliverables that you have to meet. And yeah. if you hit them, then we'll write another $150,000 check. So right. it was just being at the right place at the right time, meeting the right people and a lot of luck to be honest to get off the ground um and from there that the first hundred thousand dollars you know we had to find lab space and start hiring scientists yeah. and develop like our first milestones get our first patent files like there's a few things that had to happen but we were able to do that in the first few months and unlock the second wave of money and from there you know it was going through Y Combinator in 2017 and picking right. off our seed round and making more progress. And it gradually happened over time. But So that process you talked to earlier about, you know, making a bunch of mistakes till you finally figure out or, you know, failing in a lot of experiments. Had any of the experiments worked up to that point as you started making money, as you started building a company? Was it still like kind of going on faith or was there enough progress and be like, all right, one, we can figure out the right feedstock as it were with the right plant where we could use to make this case in. And, you know, was it how far along that kind of scientific journey were you or was it more just like, all right, we're building a team. This is our idea. Take a pun on us. We promise we'll figure this out. <laughs> I think that was it was like that for the first check for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but after that, I think that the way to think about it is every time you do an experiment, you learn something and it gets yeah. you closer to the answer. And what we've done is we've learned a lot. Every time we do a set of experiments, we've learned a lot and we took these lessons and built the new set of experiments that got us closer. So I would say we didn't get there on the science until, you know, a few years in, but we've made yeah. significant progress in the right direction that made this an exciting opportunity from an investment perspective. Did you have to founder date? Did you have to find a scientific, like a biologist co-founder or somebody early on who could help kind of guide that process? Because obviously you have an engineering background. This is a deeply biological process. <laughs> yes, I, I did. So um, the big thing is that I got support from 
GF, the Good Food Institute science hmm. person that just started. And that was extremely helpful even before like having a formal company. Uh, and after that, like the first person that joined the company was a, a PhD scientist with a right. plant biology degree. You know, obviously I cannot be in the lab doing experiments and she was. <laughs> and then from there, right, right. you know, we hired more people in the lab. Like the first few hires were all scientists in the lab doing research. And so where are you now? I think you have found like the plant you're using. I don't know if you have actually produced cheese yet or like, you know, where have you got to with the science? Because you just raised this $75 million round, a ton of money. So clearly you must have shown something that got these investors very excited. Yes, we are at a point where, you know, after four years of R&D, we have a really good understanding of how to make our proteins, how to make them in a cost competitive way. And not just that, but how to make other proteins, not just casein and dairy, mm. how to make other proteins that are also really interesting uh, from a mission and impact and financial return perspective. So right. the focus for us right now is on bringing the first product to market. So scaling up and up to this point, we've done everything at a smaller scale in the lab, in the greenhouse. Yeah. And the next phase for us is going from where we are to, you know, manufacturing and field. So it's a transition and it's a scale up process. That's what the next 24 months look like, but also expanding our R&D capabilities so we can do more things in the pipeline uh, that are very exciting. What is the feedstock? What's the plant? We work with soybean. Soy is the cheapest form of plant protein on the planet. And hmm. It's actually, if you look at it on average, 34, 35% by weight protein. Right. So if you have an acre and you want to produce the most protein per acre, you use soy, right? And right. if we want to be cost competitive, it's really important for us to be able to make the most protein for the least amount of input and cost. And actually, that's why, if you think about it, like why it's used so much as an animal feed, because no one wants to spend money on animal feed. You want it to be as cheap as possible and have, yeah. you know, a high amount of protein and the right amino acids. So we are starting with soybeans and our protein, our dairy proteins are produced in the soy. Got you. And so you figured out a way to kind of tease out the proteins you need and basically re-engineer them into cheese. Yes. So it's actually not that different from the process of making milk, right? Because mm. when you make cheese, you start with an animal-based milk. In our yeah. situation, we take our soybeans and we make our own milk. We make our plant milk. Yeah, soy dream. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's it's kind of like <laughs> a soy milk base that has yeah. our dairy proteins in it. And then we can take it through a very similar process that you would do when you're making cheese from animal milk. It's a very similar process. I see. And how does it compare when you talk about like, you know, the, I think it was six pounds of food and a thousand gallons of water for a gallon of milk. How will your process compare, you know, once you're kind of scaling up or is there like a kind of a one-to-one -one comparison you can make? Yeah. I think to really answer that question, you need to have your whole operations and hire an independent third party and really like quantify your, yeah. you know, water use emissions etc right so that's like if you want a real real answer it has to be done that way but we've done preliminary work around water use emissions and land use and mm -hmm. you know in terms of emissions three to four times less emissions from our pound of cheese versus a pound of dairy so you're talking about 22 times less water, 10 times less land, and three to four times less greenhouse gas emissions. But again, that's from a theoretical model, just yes. knowing what it takes, the inputs it takes to grow plants versus dairy uh, from a cow. But we'll have to validate these numbers with a full life cycle assessment. That's my engineering side telling you. Like we have to yes, validate yes. them with a full life cycle <laughs> assessment done by a third party. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> And what is the limiting factor here for you? Is it like, in thinking about like scaling up, like we talked with Dave Friedberg last week and he was talking about like, 
you know, there's a kind of a shortage of like bioreactors and kind of just manufacturing infrastructure and that kind of like really kind of boring but quite important stuff to actually make this be something that yeah. is cost competitive. That's the beauty of plants is we have so much farmland. We have 90 million acres of soybeans and there is no shortage of that. And we can work with what we have easily. In our case, I think that the limiting factor is time (laughs) because to get from one generation of plants to the other. So our scale up is going to involve taking plants growing them to the next generation. So you get more plants, taking them to grow to the next generation. So each plant gives you, let's say like a hundred seeds and you grow these seeds, you get a hundred plants, they grow. Yeah, It's exponential, but cycles take six months, about six months to grow in the field. So, right. I mean, it can go from four to six months, depending on where you grow it and the time of the year. But for us, time is the biggest factor. And the next two years are the bottleneck for us. Once you grow enough acres, then you kind of have a really large amount of seeds that enables you to grow as many acres as you want. I mean, to your point, you have there's 90 million of acres of soy right now. Couldn't you just buy some? I mean, you don't have to grow your own, do you? No, we contract it out. Yeah, we don't have right. to grow our own. We contract it out. So we work with growers, you know, farmers, and we basically agree that they're going to grow this many acres for us. The, the challenge is not the acres it's more producing enough seeds to be able to give the farmers to grow and the bottleneck for us is just the next two years because we're going to be bulking up our seeds Mm. it takes time to go from one generation to the other and presumably you'll be building a processing facility or a place to actually make the turn this stuff into cheese not in the short term we're not going to build it ourselves because the infrastructure is out there we're not doing anything that different. So the way you process soybeans and then the way you process milk into cheese, we're not changing that. You know, mm. 90% of the things that we're doing are existing processes. So we're going to plug in to the existing infrastructure. There is actually capacity out there that we can use. I mean, eventually we might want to build our own, but part of it is like, if we don't have to do that right now and we can learn and optimize our process on someone else's equipment, why build it? Yeah. So we're not really building a factory right now and we don't have to. And that's the beauty of working with a crop that's already in the supply chain and using processes that are existing and out there to turn like a milk into cheese. So in other words, you can contract out kind of your process. You can be like, this is what you need to do in your facility, and this will create the cheese we want. Yes. In other words, you just basically give them the instructions, and they don't have to like build anything new. They just have to tell their machines to do a certain at a certain way. Yeah, and, and honestly, it's not even a different process. You know, like if we go into a cheese production line, mm-hmm. we can give a similar starting material that they're used to working with and just have them run it through the exact same process. I see. Which is great for us. And then eventually, you know, we might want to build something later because you can get your costs down if you have everything more um, integrated and all that. But that's not a bottleneck for us in the next two, three, four years. Have you tried this cheese? <laughs> yes. <laughs> is it cheese? Like, yes. really? Because everybody who has tried any <laughs> alternative anything knows, like, usually it sucks. I will say I really like oat milk, but that's after having <laughs> seen 20 years of rice milk, soy milk, <laughs> almond milk, all the milks I thought were disgusting. So, <laughs> I mean, I started the company because I felt that way. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I, I think, don't take my word for it, RVP of products and food science comes from the dairy world and Mm. he drinks milk and eats cheese and a pint of ice cream not joking like every day that's part of his daily diet he's He's a serious dairy dude yeah yeah so i know that i thought i had high standards but he is not gonna let us have a product that he will not buy and eat so i think that is our standard and when we do testings of you know performance or taste and functionality like we always 
do that with an animal based cheese as a control. Like that's what we're comparing right. ourselves to. And yeah, yeah. to your point, like the product will definitely get better over time. It's not like the first one is going to be amazing and we're done. Yeah. But I do think that for someone who started this company because I did not like anything else that was out there, I do think that we're onto a product that can really live up to the expectations of what you want from cheese. Throwing it forward and looking at what you guys are working on and you guys, there's obviously a lot of alternative dairy companies and meat companies, everything else. We talked to a guy, Jim Mellon in the UK on this podcast a few months ago, and he's a big investor in this world. And he's like, he sees like the end of dairy and the offing, like on the horizon, like the dairy industry as we know it, which we talked about at the top around these massive feedlots and all of that stuff in terms of like the dairy industrial complex, let's call it, and the way it's produced, he thinks that is kind of on borrowed time now because companies like yourselves and many others are coming up with ways that are like, you know, creating alternatives that are effectively as good or good enough to not do, to not drink and not support the kind of traditional dairy industry. I think that we are on track to making a positive impact in that direction. But I still think we not like we as Mm. Nobel or me, we as all the people working on these products, we still have a lot of work to do. Right. And the reality is that until you solve for taste, price and convenience, and, and by solve, I don't mean you pay twice as much and you can only find it at a Michelin star restaurant and it's tastes good, but like kind of good if you hide it with <laughs> yeah, other yeah, things, yeah. right? And yeah. I think that we are heading in the right direction, but I do think that we still have a lot of work to do together. And to me, what guides this statement is the numbers. And mm. you know, and, and I'm just I'm saying that not in a negative way, in in more of an opportunity to invite more people to come in and innovate and more brands and because we really need more people using their brains and talents and efforts on on solving this problem. Um, 99% of cheese today comes from an animal. 1% comes from non-animals. So even though it's growing and it's moving fast enough, it's still, I think there's a lot of room for growth and there's you know, a long way to go. And we have to be able to meet the things that I talked about, which are price, taste, and convenience. We have to be able right. to hit all three of them, not one of them or two of them at a time, all three of them. And it's going to take some time. But I think that people are realizing, especially like millennials and Gen Zers, like they're realizing that the way we're doing things are not scalable, they're not sustainable, and that we need to do things in a different way. I think that if you look at historically, in particular, the dairy industry, we've seen so much consolidation. Like in 1980, we had 300,000 independent like dairy farms. Yeah. And today there's 30,000 left. Wow. So not only that, but like the average size of the farm was about 80 you know, the herds was 80 cows and now it's 1,300 cows or something like that. So we're seeing a lot of consolidation and this industry has been really good at driving costs down and driving efficiencies at the expense of everything else, at the expense of the small farmers that are really struggling and are left behind, at the expense of environmental stewardship, animal welfare. And I think that there's a lot more awareness and it's not gonna last but in order to really change that we need to have more companies more brands more solutions and we need to be competitive on cost taste and we need to be accessible and that's what we strive to do but it's gonna take time we'll get there but i I don't think it's gonna happen you know in a year or (laughs) uh, i think it's gonna be you know a little longer to get there but i think we're on the right track I have two questions and I'll let you go because I know we're kind of going over time. But one is the name Nobel. Is that a reference to cowbells? <laughs> um, we went through a rebrand. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I wish I had like a very nostalgic, uh, amazing story to tell you about this. But the reality is most names that you want to pick, you can't because there is a trademark issue and yes. um, everything's trademarked already. So we try to focus on what is our strategy as a company? What is our brand? What do we stand for? And came up with like a list of names and narrowed it down to a very short list. And the person who came up with Nobel was thinking of, yeah, Nobel, like no bells and no cows. But like, I think our brand is more than just no bells and no cows. It's really, <laughs> um, you know, it's meant to be playful. Yeah. And yeah, it's yeah. meant to be, you know, digestible, easy to say, and a name that can stick with you. So that's how we end up with Nobel. But yeah, it started with the, you know, no Nobel, no cows. Yeah. Right. And then just lastly, you're trying to do this. You're not just working on the science. You're actually trying to do this as a brand, like craft cheese or something. Like you're trying to launch a consumer product, correct? Yes, that's correct. Why? What? Because that's a whole, that's a completely different challenge, which is as big or not bigger. I mean, like all the things we've been talking about, like, you know, the challenge is really getting people to buy in or at least even try, be like, oh, that's not real cheese or whatever. So why did you choose that kind of path? There is a couple reasons. Um, one, it was really important for us to be in charge of communicating our innovation and our technology because we are doing something new that's different and I am a big believer that the words we use and how we talk about something is as important if not sometimes more than the science behind them and I think that you can be very successful or not, depending on how you communicate. So it was really important for us to have a direct line of communications with the people that are buying our products and share our story and how we make it and be transparent and open and talk about things like, yeah, we're using genetic engineering, but this is why we're using it. And this is why it's safe. And those are the benefits to you, the planet. So those are conversations that I believe should not be outsourced. So we wanted to be the voice and we wanted to talk directly to people that buy our products. The second reason is scale. So in order for us to be able to have a B2B model where we just sell ingredients to whoever wants to buy them, yeah. we need to be able to get to a scale that because we talked to a lot of the partners, like all the, you know, the big companies of the world that would buy this ingredient. and they think in like tons or millions of tons yeah, yeah, <laughs> of yeah. material. And it's going to take us a while to get to that scale, but we can do so much with smaller amounts of products much earlier on and start these conversations and get feedback and talk to people uh, that are buying our products. So we, we didn't want to wait to get to this massive scale in order to be able to be out there and sell product and have these conversations. So those are the, the main two reasons why we chose to go the brand and if you think about it i mean i'm sure you're familiar with impossible foods yep imagine they came to market selling heme like imagine their business model was like yeah. we're going to sell you a pound of heme or 10 pounds of heme like no one would have spent the amount of energy resources r&d as no. they did to figure out how to make it work and they would have had a different story a different you know these technologies are it's very important how we talk about them and how we bring them to the world. And we want to be in the front seat when that happens. We don't want to outsource that to someone else. And the, you mentioned you guys use genetic engineering. Is the, is the engineering in the breeding of the soybeans to create the kind of the milk, so to speak, that you guys need? Is that kind of what you're talking about? No, the, the, the genetic engineering is basically we give instructions to the plants to make very proteins. The soybeans make their own proteins they make plant proteins and in order for them to make other types of proteins you have to instruct them to do that so our genetic engineering is basically giving instructions to the plant having the code the dna code that mm. the plant starts making your dairy protein that's the engineering part 
how do you give it instructions? You can't say soybean. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Make dairy. <laughs> no, but we, you can insert a piece of DNA. So we basically insert a piece of DNA into the soybean embryo and the mm. plant that grows out of it has the instructions and starts making the protein. I see. And those are those contracts you're doing now of like these farmers are going to grow your soybeans that produce the kind of the beans that you need to produce what you need. Yes, exactly. I see. I see. I see. Um, do you have a dog or a cat now? Yes, I have two cats. Did you rescue them? Yes, both. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom, my mom has one in Lebanon too that we found on the street almost dying at Christmas of 2019 and she's a rescue too. So you're still saving cats. <laughs> I've saved dogs in the past too. It's not right. Uh, it's and just cows up next. Cows are next. That's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> and that is all the time we have. I want to thank Maggie for taking the time. I want to thank you all. Just thank you for being you listeners. Um, hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. I think it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I'm very interested in this stuff. Um, I'm not sure who's coming on next week, but we'll have something techie, something that's probably not food related, you know, give you guys a break, keep the, the mix fresh. But I just think it's a really interesting area. And, and very clearly, it's where a lot of money is going at the moment, and a lot of interest and, and more, more big brains. So I think it is worth covering. And, and I hope you guys found it useful and interesting. That's it for me this week. Please follow me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can find me in the Times this weekend at thetimes.co.uk. You can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And that is it. Have a fabulous weekend, and I will talk to you next week. Want more out of this podcast? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews, broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. 